There's something so alluring about national parks. Alluring and sometimes dangerous. The big vistas of nature tend to lend to themselves to both mishaps and murder. Join us as we talk about the death of the 27-year-old yoga instructor, Leslie Spellman, a cold case that happened right here where we live, on Mont Desert Island in Maine. To understand the story of Leslie Spellman, you have to understand a bit of um, where we live, right? The allure of Acadia National Park. Yes. And so Acadia National Park is on Mount Desert Island, which is located almost all the way up the coast of Maine. It's close to Canada, which makes some people go cold, right? Oh, it's cold. It's 36 uh, <laughs> degrees outside right now. It's really cold today. Um, and the island is part of the Wabanaki people of the Donlands homeland. The Wabanaki consists of the Penobscot, Passamaquoddy, Maliseet, and Micmac. And there's a fantastic museum on this island that we're giving a shout out to called the Abbey Museum. And that museum is dedicated to making sure everyone knows this because a lot of times when people talk about... Uh, Acadia National Park in Mount Desert Island, we only talk about the last 200 years of Acadia oh, yeah, National yeah. Park. We always glaze over like, the Native American yeah, history, don't we? Yeah, like, what? People of the Dawnland? People lived here before the French people and the English people came? No way! You know, it's right. just like, it's very interesting. But the Abbey is dedicated to making sure we don't keep doing that. So we want to do our part. So... The park has only been around 100 years. The Wabanaki have been here on this island for thousands of years. And in the 1600s, all the white people came, drawn here by these massive forests and like the huge bays and coves. And it's really a great place as a sea route. Um, people still use it as a stopover, um, as evidenced by all the cruise ships that come here every year, right? Heck yeah. Heck yeah. So when the... White people came. It was really friendly. Samuel D. Champlain showed up. Things were chill. It was Champlain who saw our little island and saw the treeless mini mountains because they are pretty treeless on the top. Very mini. And, and they're tiny. Like if you're used to the Rockies or the Alps or any mountains in South America um, or Asia, any mountains anywhere else, honestly, you'll be like, uh, are you sure those there are mountains? There are those really Technically, they're mountains. I know. Okay, so our biggest... Anyway, so um, Champlain was like, hey, let's call this the Island of Bare Naked Mountains. And that's how we got our name, Mount Desert Island. Really? What the what? Yeah. I didn't know that. So our biggest mountain, Cadillac, is just 1,532 feet, right? Wow. So these are not, as we were saying, monstrously large mountains. And the island itself is 
the sixth largest island in the contiguous U.S., right? Yeah. And it's the third largest on the eastern seaboard, only, I think, outdone by what? Long Island? I don't know. And one other place that I can't remember. <laughs> um, but anyways, after Champagne and his people trooped through and uh, took a lot of land, Henry Hudson came, and he was like, whoa, let's loot it, a village, and let's bomb it the way of 1609. Douchebaggery. Yes, thank you, douchebaggery. <laughs> um, you know, people came here and they killed priests, for God's sake. Like, it was a little bit of a war site. Um, Hudson was allegedly looking for the mythical city of Norumbega, which we named a mountain after. Um, he did not find Norumbega. Has anybody ever found it? I don't believe so, no. Um, but they bought lovely gifts, like a pandemic that killed about 75% of everyone in the New England coast. Yay! Um, and the Wabanaki Confederacy, um, they formalized and they unified in the early 1600s. Um, and they actually supported the colonists in the American Revolution, signing the Treaty of Watertown, right? Wow. And in return, as soon as the war was over, they were pretty much decimated because of famine and infectious illnesses and warfare. Um, so when you think of our island, it's this beautiful, gorgeous place, right? And it's idyllic, but it has all this history, you know, mm -hmm. history that we don't realize when we're hiking all around in our LL Bean boots and... and, and and eating our oysters and lobsters, right? right. So, um, basically, this island's bigger than Martha's Vineyard, smaller than Long Island, full of granite that's been molded and tweaked by this ice sheet called the Laurentide Ice Sheet. And it's, like, really cool place, right? Um, and it's a lot of tourists now. And in the last couple of years, a uh, hundred years, that's been the norm. Bar Harbor was a summer playground of the Astors and the Rockefellers for sheiks and socialites. Northeast Harbor still is. Southwest Harbor and Bass Harbor are all on the quiet side, and they have summer communities as well. So if you're not from here and listening, this is a big island with a bunch of communities in it, right? Yeah. Um, But the year-round population is around 10,000, and in the summer... Martha Stewart, that guy from Law and Order, um, and thousands of others arrive and enjoy our island. Um, and it's a, a beautiful place. <laughs> yeah, and a big part of that draw is Acadia National Park with its baby mountains like we talked about and its U-shaped valleys and its cobbled beaches and its wetlands and its meadows and its granite domes and its glacial erratics. It's a walker's paradise thanks to the 45-mile carriage road system paid for by John D. Rockefeller Jr. And tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of trails, right? Yes. And even a vehicular road system, but not really a system, it's more like a road, that winds it's through. It's a loop. <laughs> it's called the Park Loop Road, and it winds through some of the 49,000 acres of the park, right? Yep. So you hike up a mountain, you see pines and spruces and ocean and lakes on the island, ocean outside the island, lakes on the island, and little baby towns. It's gorgeous, right? It's very, very much a gorgeous place. Yeah, and it's a beautiful place full of rocky coasts and quaint villages and, you know, it's just in carriage trails, but it's also an island where death 
happens. On occasion. On occasion, well, right? Well, regularly if it's natural or accidental. But. Yes, and you as a former popo, you know that, right? Like, Shani sees the death. Or oh, yeah, the death. I used to. Yeah. Um, so that first attack I was talking about a long time ago was, um, and referenced earlier in the podcast, was um, in the French and Indian War actually happened here when a ship from Virginia destroyed the first um, French colony of missionaries in the United States. Like, what? And that colony began in 1613, and for a while, MDI was considered French. Huh. I know. My people. So, uh, this is from Wiki. Do you want to read this? Because yeah. we keep saying, huh, you don't have a lot to do yet. I haven't said huh, <laughs> once. From Wiki, the island was granted to... Oh, you gave this to me because it's got all these hard names in it. Damn right. Dang. Anyways. I don't like hard names. They're hard. Starting again, the island was granted to Antoine de la Moth Cadillac by Louis XIV of France in 1688, but ceded to England in 1713. Massachusetts Governor Sir Francis Bernard I, Baronet, assumed control of the island in 1760. In 1790, Massachusetts granted the eastern half of the island to Cadillac's granddaughter, Mademoiselle de Grigois, while Bernard's son John retained ownership of the western half. The first record of summer visitors vacationing on the island was in 1855, and steamboat service from Boston was inaugurated in 1868. The Green Mountain Cog Railway was built from the shore of Eagle Lake to the summit of Cadillac Mountain in 1888. And then artists eventually came. Mansions, called cottages, were built, and some of the wealthy decided to preserve part of the island as Acadia National Park. Charles Elliott and George Durr, 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 were a big part of that early movement, and eventually John D. Rockefeller Jr., that we talked about earlier, joined in. Lots of big money, huh? <laughs> big money, right? To make a national park. But... Again, place of beauty, place of death. Because wherever people congregate, death happens, right? So. Well, you know, just as a side note, national yes, parks uh, are totally a magnet for suicides. Any national park. Really? Yeah, oh yeah. Why? Because uh, I don't know why. I'm not a suicidal person, but I, I always imagined because it was a place of solitude. And beauty. And um, beauty. And potential... Mm, like, not easy to find my body kind of thing. Yeah, that makes or, sense. You know? Yeah. So. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if I was going to go, why not? Except for the park rangers who have to find you. I think it's mostly the solitude in the beauty. You know? Yeah. All right. So, um, there, we're going to talk about Leslie, Leslie Spellman, which is a cold case. But before we do, we wanted to briefly touch upon other deaths in Acadia National Park. Um. And most of them aren't as nefarious as Leslie's. Um, but there have been about 69 or so since the park uh, officially became. Is that total? Like like fallings, like accidental deaths and stuff? Yes. Oh, okay. So um, one of those was David McKinney. And he was just 19 when he was with friends. And he stopped to peek in a cave near Great Head. Which sounds like the naughtiest geographical feature ever. Um, it's a great place for great hits. I, apparently, I wouldn't know. Um, so anyways, it was in 1969 that David was there, and he strayed about 20 feet away from his friends, which isn't that long. Far, right? Moving down the granite cliffs to check out the cave, because there's a cool cave. 
right there. And it's a dangerous cave. Um, And right when he was checking it out, a big wave came in and water splashed over the rock edge where David was standing and it hauled him into the sea. And they never found his body. Wow. So rogue waves, as Sean knows, can happen anywhere that there's ocean. And Maine's no exception. Sean and I were both working for law enforcement back in August 23rd, 2009, when Hurricane Bill's rogue wave yanked several tourists out into the Atlantic, pulling them off a rocky ledge and into the cold water. Frigid. Frigid seawater. Yeah, it's really cold. So tons of people scrambled back up onto the ledge by Thunder Hole, which is a major attraction in the park, where the waves sort of like smash into a crevasse. Right? Yeah. And they make a sound like thunder, and all the tourists go, woo! <laughs> <laughs> and the waves splash really dramatically, like up into the air, right? Yes. Um, and it was high tide then um, when it happened in August in 2009, and um, two people were pulled out of the water really quickly who hadn't been able to get out by themselves. Not that quickly, but um, by the Coast Quick Guard. enough that they were alive. Yeah, which has a station on our island, and um, the Coast Guard, you know, is positioned here over in Southwest Harbor. And those people survived, like Sean said, but one little girl didn't, and she was just seven. And we're not going to talk about her or her name because it's just too recent and too sad for us to do on this podcast. Right. Um, when it happened, uh, it's just... That's like an ethical decision, I guess, we've made, um, right? That's a fine decision. Yeah. This podcast isn't about that. I, I just made that ethical decision without actually consulting Sean. That's fine with me. Because I'm the wife. I don't know the name. Um, when it happened, um, Sean was still a cop, and he was doing Bar Harbor police duties, and I was a dispatcher in Mount Desert Police Department. And when the Coast Guard found the girl's body, I was the dispatcher who had to coordinate the ambulance response and hear the broken voice on the radio of the Coast Guard people. Um, And Sean had to deal with a giant mess over at um, our hospital, not our hospital's fault, but just trying to get everyone accounted for and people reunited. Right, right. right. Yeah, like, and it was chaos. Yeah, it was chaos. Very Uh, much so. um, And that was a big... Scary moment for people on our island because they realized, again, how how dangerous nature can be, right? Um, And another more recent one was a 23-year-old guy from um, Seal Harbor, and he was on his skateboard, and it was, like, early evening, and he fell off going around, like, 20 miles per hour. Um, And his friend calls dispatch at the park and saying that he hurt his head and he was unconscious and he died, you know, and there, um, so you die of many ways, right? Yeah. There's nature, there's skateboards and there's, is there murder and there's also murder. Um, um, there's other potential murders too in our idyllic park and murders, um, that sometimes look like accidents do not get any ideas, Shani. So, as wild back... I'll put you on skateboard. <laughs> oh, I would die, like, in two seconds. They'd be like, she was going two miles per hour. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> and, you'd, and you'd be like, actually, she wasn't even going that fast. <laughs> I'm the worst. Um, okay, so, anyways, on Wild Bites Back, they talk about what um, they think happened to Kathy Larson, right? So... On October 11th, 1987, Dennis Larson and his wife, Kathy Frost Larson, were taking in the views when Kathy tragically fell off a cliff and plunged 80 feet to her death, again, in Acadia National Park. 
But was it an accident, they ask? When police began investigating the incident, they uncovered some crazy S-H-I-T. Some crazy shit? Yes, sir. Really? Yeah, it turns out that Kathy was Dennis's third wife. Sounds like everybody in my family. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, except my sister. Um, they were involved in a whirlwind romance soon after Dennis had gotten divorced from his second wife. He put an ad in the paper looking for a new girlfriend, and Kathy responded, and they were married seven weeks after they met. What Kathy didn't know was the day after they were married. Dennis took out a $200,000 life insurance policy on her, which would pay double in the event of an accidental death. No way. <laughs> yeah, he Man, was... this story's full of good ideas. What? <laughs> I'm just teasing. You're so mean. <laughs> Skateboard? Is, an, is that accidental? Oh, hell yeah. Oh, nosies. I'm going to never go on anything wheeled again. <laughs> All right, so again, direct quote from Wild by Its Back. The police looked back even further, and it turns out that Dennis Larson's first wife tragically drowned 12 years earlier in Montana. <laughs> His wives don't have a lot of luck. No, at, that, at the time, Dennis said she fell in and was swept away. He claimed he jumped in to try to save her but failed, and her body has never been found. The officer taking a statement noted that Dennis was completely dry, despite supposedly jumping into the water to save her. But with no body and no other evidence, they couldn't charge him, and it took the authorities seven years to officially pronounce her dead, but once it was official, he ended up claiming 20000 in life insurance. <laughs> and yeah, considering by his third wife, he'd added a zero. Wow. Um, and, and then doubled, doubled it. it, yeah. Um, he ended up admitting to both murders. Wow. And he I served a 50-year sentence. Mm. Yeah. I know about it because I have, like, some personal connections to uh. that case. But um, but this this podcast is about Dennis. It's just to get that you understand that murder happens. And this is what happened to Leslie and how she died. But nobody does know what happened, right? And it's still a wicked, wicked cold case. And one of my editors at the um, second newspaper I ever worked at, Grady Holloway, was obsessed with this case. Oh, really? Yeah, he was like, I wish they just let us write like series after series about this girl because somebody knows, somebody knows. He was so focused and he truly believed that somebody knew what happened to Leslie. So this is Leslie's story. (laughs) And if you know what happened to Leslie, you can call the Maine State Police because it's a cold case and it's um, it's something that they really would like to solve for her family. So let's kind of like make the setting. Because I'm a writer and you're not, I guess. Um, you're like, no, that's boring. Okay, but in it's June, right? Yes. It's nineteen seventy-seven. It's nine forty-five in the morning, right? Yes. And the people up at Mount Desert Island, they're all gearing up for hundreds of tourists that descend on our island every summer season, right? Yes. And for Ernest Combs, the forty-six-year-old police dispatcher, sitting in an ancient chair. At the Northeast Harbor Fire and Police Station, 12 miles south of our town, of Bar Harbor. It was pretty calm for Ernest, right? Oh, I imagine so. The pines were moving in like this nice gentle breeze. The fog that often plagues that side of the island in the morning had started to lift. 
The ground still smelled wet for the drenching showers from that those drenching showers the night before, right? So mm -hmm. it's beautiful, right? Were you there? No, but oh, you can imagine. I know. It. I'm just teasing. Dude, no, it was 1977. <laughs> All right, so people are casually walking down the sidewalk in downtown Northeast Harbor. Um, some of the more righteous or more worried might be heading to church. Was it a Sunday? Yes. Oh. And Ernest is sitting there with his blonde hair and his mustache, because it's the 70s, and a paper, not on phone, and a coffee, right? Yeah. Because we've been addicted to coffee in this country for a while. So, as a fellow former police dispatcher, although only part-time, I have to tell you that that sounds pretty damn good. Sounds <laughs> like a good way to start a shift, yep. Yeah. I mean, it's a couple hours into it. He's still, still waking up. Yeah, it all sounds perfect except for the mustache part. So, because um, I don't want a mustache, I'm not into that. So, the radio is full of chatter, right? Yeah. But Ernie's officer, Matthew Stewart, um, was 10-whatever. What's the 10 code for you being remember. at your residence? <laughs> um, having some coffee, right? He's busy. 10-6? Mm -hmm. I don't remember. All right, the chief... Maitland Murphy, he was away on his own vacation, and Sergeant Tyrone Smith was at his house painting it. Probably not on the coast. <laughs> I don't but know. Who knows? It was tranquil, it was idyllic, and hopefully Ernie's copy was damn good because the black phone on the dispatch counter rang and an excited man started to talk. And if you ever pitch up, pick up the phone at a PD, Sean knows, when people are excited and something has happened, it can be a lot trying to parse through things. Trying to understand what the hell they're saying. Yeah. Yes. So, anyways, this man, a tourist, had found Leslie, and it wasn't good. Um, I believe the police chief informed me there was a homicide, and they were investigating it. Derlin Lunt Jr., who was a selectman then and eventually a town manager, told the Fox 22 Bangor reporter when recalling this, right? Yes. He didn't have many details just that they had found a body over at the Astiku Gardens, blunt force trauma, as far as they could tell, Lunt said. They didn't know then that it was Leslie, not yet. The Hingham, Massachusetts resident's body created a stir in that little town, right? I'm sure it did. Because nobody knew who she was. Nobody knew if she was a summer resident, a seasonal worker, if she was killed there, if she was killed somewhere else, if she was just visiting, even for the day. It took a week for people to figure out um, and connect her to her family so her family could come and identify her body. Another dispatcher, Kathy Summonsby, told the bar Bangor Daily News, people were very shocked. The feeling was that this was not a local thing. Well, it's not. <laughs> so... Police officers at Rutgers University has handed out cards to hitchhiking women like Leslie. It turns out she had been hitchhiking that read, if I were a rapist, you'd be in trouble. Can you imagine? <laughs> um, like, and that was like, um, like Leslie's death and a lot of people's death, like in that time period, it became a big deal to try to make women not hitchhike anymore. Right, and right. that quote was from Ginger Strand, who's the author of Killer on the Road, Violence in the American Interstate. And she recounted that in a New York Times op-ed. Um, I grew up in the 80s remembering all my older siblings and family talking about hitchhiking. It was just something that everybody kind of did, you yep. know? Like, um, 
Although to be fair, my babysitter got in super big trouble when she hitchhiked three miles with my five-year-old self to get some smokes at the local IGA. She hitchhiked with you? <laughs> yeah. Good <laughs> Lord. My mama was like, you're gonna work it out. Oh my God, I'm, my, she was irate. Because someone saw her and mm-hmm. then everybody tells everybody in our small town. Um, but everyone did it back then, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, like, an article on Vox by Joseph Stromberg writes, dating back to the Depression in World War II, it used to be very normal to see someone sticking their thumb out and picking them up. Um, says Alan Pisarski, a transportation researcher. We lost that somewhere along the way in America, you know? And it's changed, I think, because way more people own cars that cost less and last relatively longer and it's also illegal in some states like maine to hitchhike in certain areas Uh right and in some states is banned just on the highway however there aren't any studies that prove that hitchhikers are actually more likely to be murdered raped or sodomized or abducted okay which is interesting i thought because in your head you're like whoa definitely gonna happen you know that's so dangerous but there's no actual proof um a bangor news daily news story from 2000 reports retired police executive edward mandel the lead investigator in leslie's cases saying um her sister was hitchhiking to new york from vermont leslie was coming to acadia so they dropped her off and she started hitchhiking about 12 hours later they found her body in northeast so she it was like less than a day like she barely started she was making good progress though yeah um, for hitching yeah and they'd been in bar vermont mm-hmm. um and police checked restaurants and stores all along you know the major ways right. that you could get from there to here and they found absolutely nothing leslie was a tiny person so tiny that she had to use a step ladder to look and work under the hood of her jeep Wow. She painted. She played guitar. She um, brought her scruffy dog trailer with her almost everywhere. She was a yoga instructor and a painter, and she had this incredible love for life and for exploration and for existence. And, you know, that's what she was doing. She was going to our beautiful park to explore. Yeah. And she loved animals and art and being outside and creating jewelry and teaching herself how to play the mandolin. And like for a few years, she worked for the city of Boston. So when she had any chance to backpack, to just be outside outdoors and like not in the freaking city. Yeah. She jumped at it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, She knew how to play um, uh, the guitar I mean, the mandolin, before she got home, her sister told the Boston in a June 8th, June 28th, 1977 article in Boston is the Boston Globe, right? Yeah. Like, she just loved learning and becoming, right? She was doing everything perfectly, her sister said, whether it was backpacking or jogging along the beach. She had a long... A log of faith in God. A lot of faith in God. And the more faith she had, the more beautiful she became, her sister said. And, and she was really pretty, right? Yeah, was she? Yeah, I think so. Amy's sister was worried that people would think less of Leslie because she was a hitchhiker, and she told the Globe that she worried, quote, people would have the image of her as some crazy hippie. Instead, she was a highly motivated, hardworking woman. And she had blossomed in the year before her murder, her sister said. There seemed no end to what she could do. 
Amy told the Globe. Her artwork began to look as if she had studied art for years. Which is, like, just so sad. Because she's so young and so... Yeah, it always is. <laughs> yeah, it I always mean. is sad. Um, so, there's a theory. So, I have no idea how to say this last name, but Lauren Aquin, a 27-year-old man from Hartford, Connecticut, he was wanted for questioning in Leslie's case. He'd already been charged for killing nine people, right? Wow. Yeah. Um, in Prospect, Maine. What? Uh, well, somewhere around Prospect, Maine. For like, real? Yeah. Nine well, people? I don't know if all nine were there, but oh, some of them were there. Lord. Yeah. So the link between the killings are that they had all had blows to their heads by someone who did this with their right hand and used a blunt instrument. Oh. And according to Deputy Corporal Edward Mandel, again, of the Maine State Police, there was fur in this guy's car that matched with Taylor's, Leslie's dog. Really? Yeah. Did and they it, ever find the dog? In all the reports, I cannot find anything about, about the dog. The dog's fate. So, mm. Taylor's, um, I can't, uh, dogs. All right, so Aquin said the connections were like flimsy and absurd, right? right. I was like, what the hell? Um, and another theory proposed that the Texas murderer James Hicks could have been the man who killed Leslie and two other women in Maine. Hicks was arrested in 2000 for attacking and robbing a 67-year-old woman from Lubbock, Texas. But even before that, he was arrested in 1984 for killing his wife, Jenny. His, he's linked to the disappearance of two other main women by an FBI profiling team. And one of those women, it was Leslie, right? And mm -hmm. the other one is Ellen Choate, who is a 26, found in Newport in 1977. Another one is Joyce McLean, 16, uh, and found dead in East Millinocket back in 1980. So those are all around the same time period. Yeah, right? that's for sure. <laughs> so according to the Portland Press-Herald, quote, Last week, Hicks led police to an area behind his home, former home in Etna, Maine, and a Department of Transportation dump in Forkstown Township, 15 miles south of Holton, Maine. Partial remains of Jenny Hicks and Towers were found in shallow graves in Etna, two buckets filled with cement, and the other site held Willette's remains. So he was definitely... Wow. Yeah. But that's not Leslie. No. Right. So Hicks was charged with murdering Willette, um, 40, who he lived with in Brewer, Maine, before she disappeared in 1996. He's expected to be charged with the murder of Towers, 34, who was last seen leaving a Newport bar with him in 1982. And he had already served six years for killing his first life, Jenny. Right? Six years? <laughs> yeah, just six years. Body, huh? Yeah, right. So... The hope um, for that Hicks connection to Leslie has ended up nowhere. Apparently. Yeah, so far at least. Um, and then there was the murder of Justine Renee Gridley, who was just 19 back in LaGrange, Maine, at the end of March 1983. Justine was hit in the head by a blunt instrument multiple times, and the Maine State Police Detective Sergeant Ralph Pinkham said that the death resembled Leslie's. So Leslie's body was found at the Azalea Garden at the Astaku, right? Yes. Um, and two rabbit hunters found Gridley under a pine tree on a tote road off Route 155. Leslie had been hitchhiking, so had Justine. But they couldn't say they were actually connected. 
or if either were connected to the death of Joyce McLean, 16, back in 1980-81, and Joyce was found partially clothed near a soccer field behind Shank High School, and again, killed by a blunt blow multiple times, which, to be fair, is a common way to die in Maine if you're a woman. Apparently so. But <laughs> like guns and blunt bro blows. Like <laughs> what? Wait. Blunt bros. Blunt bros. <laughs> and, blunt and blunt blows. Bros. Yeah, that's always a bros. Um so um the case most often linked to Leslie is that of Ellen Choate, a woman from Philadelphia whose body was found in Newport, Maine, just a few weeks apart from Leslie's. Ellen was found by the old country road in the woods. Um and she was heading from Bangor to Philadelphia to take a new job as a nursery school teacher. She got on a bus in Bangor, got off in Newport. Nobody knows why. But she did have friends who lived in a commune on Newport Stetson Road. Um, but there's never been a good suspect for Leslie's death at all, right? Like, at a press conference in 2007, Amy, her sister, again, said, it's never over and never goes away. I would like to know who did it and where they are now. So were any of those other cases solved? <laughs> yeah, some like of them. Choke? I know the ones that are, all the ones connected to Hicks were. Yeah, Choke. Well, I don't think Choke's being solved. Wow. Choke or... Um, Joyce McLean has... Um, oh, did that recent... That's always... That's a really sad case and her mom is so... The 16-year-old? Yeah, uh, Tank. I think something might have just happened with that. Oh, really? But I would have to look it up. Oh, yeah, Maybe we'll do it for another podcast. Sure. Um, it's just so sad. You know, like, it's been 1970s, like, 50 years. You know, like, it was 77, but it's right. a long time. And to not know what happened to your beautiful, amazing, so-loved sister. For, literally 45 years, so. Who had all That's that talent. That's a long time. Look at you showing off with the math. Well. <laughs> Show off. Um, it's very, very interesting. Um, oh, see that I can kind of get Grady's obsession now. Yeah, you want to solve it, right? You want to go out there and solve it, like what happened to Leslie, right? Um, Derlin Lunt told Fox Bangor, "It was a horrible thing. Obviously, a young person like that, with their whole life in front of them, taken away so suddenly and violently. It isn't what we should be about as a society." or as a community. And he went on to say, was it somebody from away? Was it somebody here in town? This, that is where the community, obviously, would get concerned. Unfortunately, I don't think we know a lot more today than we did for some 40 years ago, Lent later said. That's true. Apparently we don't know, oh, well, you know, we don't, but I mean, the authorities don't know anymore. Yeah. But, I don't know. I guess before DNA, they weren't really preserving DNA evidence. Not that they so, would try sometimes. So you know, unless you but, got lucky, like oh, here's a cigarette butt, yeah, and you collected that, yeah, because you don't even know about the DNA stuff. You're just thinking that, you know, yeah, somewhere down the road it might be valuable, which yeah. it could be, but the the hitchhiking thing is what gets me because everybody assumes it happens really. Like Derlin's quote is interesting to me because it leans towards anything could have happened. Right. And Grady, my former boss, who loved his noir um, detective novels, mm -hmm. and was kind of a, you know, beatnik. Yeah. He uh, 
really didn't think it happened when she, uh, it was a hitchhiking thing. Really? Yeah, he really, really believed it was uh, someone here. Or someone she met while tramping around, tramping around the island. Not tramping, like tramping, traipsing, like around the island, you know? Um, and, her, know. and her sister Amy, I guess we should close with this, said, It's not hitchhiking that killed her, but a society which could bring so much hurt and pain on someone that a person could strike out as something so beautiful as Leslie. Well, you know, that's how people always feel. I know. When it's their loved one. I know. That's been murdered. And it's true. It's, it's obviously very true. I'm true. not trying to downplay it at all. It's so sad. I'm still thinking about the hitchhiking thing. Yeah. Because well, I think it's phenomenally pretty good progress, unless you get lucky. To go from Bar uh, Vermont to Acadia National Park. And be dead. And mur- manage to get murdered. In 12 hours. In 12 hours. Yeah. That's pretty uh, fast. Honestly. Yeah. Unless you get lucky with a straight through. Somebody just happens to be going to the island early on or yeah. something like that. But the thing is, like, the garden. Like, wait, was she at the Azalea Gardens or the Astaku? She was at Astaku. Aren't they the same place? No. Not the Astaku. No, the the Azalea Gardens. Inn, you mean right? The Azalea Gardens are up on a. I know where the, I know the difference. Now, okay, but well, for people listening, correct. the Azalea Gardens are like down by the road. It's not like that hidden. You know what I mean? No, but, but it's not necessarily something you would think of. I wouldn't see. hide a body there. Not if you don't want to be found. Right. But, but the not, other... Not the Astaku Inn either. No, but the Astaku <laughs> Gardens are up on the side of a mountain, right? Uh-huh. And uh, abut some property, but are mostly abutting Acadia National Park. Well, I forget what you said in the podcast, but I always thought it was the Astaku. I will look it up. But yeah, it's kind of... And where I feel like that's a really big, important part. Well, um, it is. Because... If it was at the actual, at the actual inn, then that means that means it was a guest. It was at the Astaku Garden. <laughs> well, it wasn't at the inn at all. It was at the Astaku Gardens, is where it was, according to the reports. Um, but some of them say Azalea, so I have to. I think it's check. kind of a synonymous, a synonymous thing. But it shouldn't be, because. I guess there's a Thuya Gardens. Right, that's and the then there's the, Gardens. the ones on the corner, up at the big at the intersection. Ah, so that's hard. the Thuya Gardens. They're really sure. close together. Oh, there's don't like they're away. so close together. And I know someone who listens to this podcast is gonna be like, "You idiots!" It's well, this one, uh, yeah. but it doesn't matter. It does really. matter. Uh, it does if you're gonna try to solve the crime. Yeah, we need to go and do a follow up on this bad boy. Oh, all I right. I think so. Like another month, cause another month. Yeah, man. With some more, some more details. Yeah, about like, Leslie specifically, but they're really hard to find. About no, I didn't mean that honestly. Oh. I meant about about all the girls. Oh. Like we can create a big timeline and 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 start <laughs> get some of these internet sleuths really on the case. Well, you could do that. With all your extra time. All my extra time. All your extra time. All right, honey. <laughs> I'll try to work that in. <laughs> Maybe I can research it up on my phone while I'm working at the store. Oh, my gosh. Anyways, 
Thank you for listening. If you do know anything about Leslie, please contact the Main Street um, Police Cold Case. Um, we'll have that number in the podcast notes. And, uh, and, uh, Thank you so much. Yeah. And have a fantastic day. Yeah. Or night. Or whatever you do. Yeah. Don't murder people. No. And be <laughs> careful. Be careful if you're alone. Dude. Excuse us, dude. 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 Dude.